In our scripture today, we have heard two of the several micro parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God. If you're a fan of Super Bowl ads, you've seen that the ads have moved toward 45-minute slots that are actually a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the story actually can contain a meaning in that short time. Here we have something that Jesus had started to do 2,000 years ago, and in these two little parables are some great truths. I would like to ponder with you and reflect with you on the first of these two parables because I love how nuanced it is and because it has been so personal in my own life. I believe that this parable is really Jesus trying to teach us how the kingdom of God is experienced by us alone, by us personally. There are other parables that talk more communally and more globally, but this one is talking about you and me. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. So here we have an event of great joy, a life-changing event, a great big yes to God, all chips in kind of moment. You can just imagine the ordinary humdrum of life. Have you ever been in a cycle of life that feels like it will never end? Maybe a semester feels like that, but you know the end is coming. But there are times where you feel like we will never get out of this house. We will never get out of this debt. I will never get out of this job. Or I'll never get out of this situation. And life just grinds on humdrum, humdrum. And then something happens unexpectedly, and there's a burst of possibility. And this is what this parable is about, that someone one day saw something that everyone else had missed. Notice that. The, par- the, the treasure is in the field and it's visible. But everybody's walking past the field. And one day someone looks and they see it. They're given eyes to see. There's a grace in this. And everything changes. All the humdrum, everything in life changes. Now, I know that you would not be sitting here today if you hadn't had that experience that at some point in your life, some kind of event happened where you began to see something that maybe the people around you didn't see, but it became very clear to you, and you were given sight, and what you began to see became a treasure you couldn't live without. Now, don't underestimate the mystery of having been given that sight. Jesus often struggled with people who were even very religious, who couldn't see and couldn't hear the things that were right in front of them. In fact, in the chapter just before that, Jesus was talking about why he used parables, and he says, the knowledge of the kingdom of God has been given to you, to his disciples, but not to them. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear. Sometimes when we we begin to see, we take it lightly. We don't realize that there's a gift in that. There's a mystery and a miracle in the fact that we can see the treasure. Don't underestimate that in its very self. If you wonder, is God in my life? The fact that you even wonder that is a gift from God. So you sold all you had and you bought the treasure. No, you can't afford this treasure. You sold all you had and you bought the field so that you could possess the treasure. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the field. In Jesus' context, when he said that, he was saying a lot, because in his context, land is identity. 
Land is history and family and vocation. Land controls everything. It controls your entire life. It controls your social status. And if you, aren't, if you don't have land, you have nothing. You're an outcast. In fact, if you go back to Joshua 14 in the original giving out of land, the first thing that God did in the promised land was he gave people parcels of land. But he didn't call them farms. He didn't call them parcels of land. He, what did he call them? Inheritances. Your inheritance was your, what was passed on to you. It was where you were raised. It was what would determine your, uh, your vocation, how you would earn your money, how you would survive. And this land is passed on from generation to generation. So when Jesus said that the man sold all he had and bought a different field, do you get what he's saying? He sold his identity. He sold his past. He sold what was familiar to him. He sold his future. Can you not imagine how angry his mother was? <laughs> I can just see her with her hands on her hips, giving him a scolding. Don't you know what your father, your father worked these fields. Your brothers worked these fields. You have a son. You're going to sell this. You're going to sell our home. You're going to buy this other piece of land. That land doesn't belong to our family. But he had to have the treasure. And so he sold the land. This man was given sight to see something that trumped everything else in his life. And he was filled with joy. And he humbly moved to the field. It was audacious what he did and risky. Now imagine with me some months later, he walks out of the door of the new house on this field and he looks out over the field. How does he feel? Today, he's not looking at the treasure. He's looking at the field. He doesn't recognize them. The hills and the trees and the scenery around him is not the scenery he grew up on. These aren't the trees he climbed when he was young. These aren't the trees his father spoke to him, the trees that his, the goats um, pastured under. No, no, this is weird and strange. And there's like this feeling in him of lostness. And the field is not nearly de as developed as the field he left that had been in his family for generations. In fact, there, it's a field like in, uh, if you've, how many of you have dug in the garden, the community garden? Oh my goodness, there's like three quarters of an inch of soil, maybe, clay, and then rocks. It's horrible to dig out there. That's why we put raised beds and so on. That's what his field feels like. You know, there's trees that need to be pulled up. This field isn't even ready to work. And he's worked so hard on it, and it's, it's not turning out. And then there are different neighbors. When he looks across the way, you know, the neighbors he was comfortable with that all understood him, that understood his family, that had moved aside for their family, all that's gone because he's relocated his life into a new field. And in fact, the hope that enabled him to see the treasure, to give everything away so that he could have it, begins to turn to disappointment and to anger. Laura Beach, who works with me, works with so many people in their sorrows, says she has become convinced that at the root of anger is always loss and grief. And so, as the humility fades, the humility that enabled him to embrace this new field fades, his vision of the treasure becomes fuzzy. Why did I need that treasure? 
Why did I want that treasure? What did I give up to get that treasure? And it doesn't feel as precious. Not that that would happen in our life. It is very interesting to me that this treasure is in a field, and that to me implies a process. When the man sees the treasure, he is overcome by joy. He has this big event. He says this great yes to God that has no holds back. That's a great event. But that the treasure is in the field is to me the process. He is going to have to live out being in possession of this treasure. It's a living into. And the field doesn't require the huge yes that the first moment of experience gave him, but the field requires a daily yes, a kind of grinding yes, a kind of insistent yes. The meaning of this treasure is going to be worked out in the field. There will be no so heavenly-minded there is no earthly good. There will be no ruined by the goodness of God. The purpose, the meaning, the power of the treasure is going to be worked out in the field. It is completely participatory. Now, if you're not jumping into your own life yet, let me jump into it. Let me get into your stuff. You must have experienced at some level the mystery of prevenient grace, whereby God gave you the humility and the sight to see for you to be where you are now. I often look over the community of our, our Asbury family and I think of the great investment of God in us. We are not a people who can say God has not invested much in us. If we could pile up here the investment of God in David and in um, Stephanie and in Chris and in Georgia and pile it up here, it would soon fill the whole front of our building. We have a huge investment of God that we are even gathered here in this place. And we saw the treasure, and in seeing, we said a yes. Some of us took a while to say the yes. We hear the stories. God's been calling me for 10 years. I finally said yes. I have such hope and joy. And in order to do that, we bought the field. Er, moved to Wilmore. <laughs> it's not like buying the farm. <laughs> but it can feel like it. Uh, my husband Steve is here. We're married 40 years on Sunday. Isn't that awesome? I love asking young couples, what is, when you get married, what did, what did you experience in marriage that you didn't know, you didn't expect? And for me, it was how much fun it is. And it's still, we still think, this is so much fun after all these years. But when Steve and I um, got married, we weren't believers. Uh, we, weren't, we weren't educated. We weren't privileged. We had both grown up in a certain level of poverty. We had no future. We found each other. It was the best gift of God to us. And we were going to make a future together. And over his growing, in the 60s and early 70s, my uh, Steve had been very involved in the music world. He loved the music world. And he had, a, he had collected for himself first edition albums of all the important music that emerged in the 60s and early 70s. So he had, you know, all the albums from the British Invasion, all the Phil Spector albums, all the Motown albums, all the Ribbon, ribbon, ribbon and Blues, Rhythm and Blues, um, all these albums. And when I came into his life, uh, he took me to concerts. That's what we did. We went to concerts. We saw everybody. We saw Chicago. We saw 
B.B. Um, King, Wilson Pickett, Cat Stevens, Joni Mitchell, all these bands that were McKenna Mendelssohn, Mainland, who were coming in. We just had fun. We had fun. We were barefoot. We were hippies. We had fun. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't sound as cute now as it did then. It was real cute back then. <laughs> After we encountered Christ, the living Christ, that's how it happened. We encountered the living Christ together. Our lives were utterly changed. I had had an upbringing that had a lot of uh, real legalistic Christianity in it. I knew the whole line. Steve had nothing. Total pagan. I loved that because I didn't want anything Christian in my life. So he was my perfect mate, you know. So we had, we had this life. We had come to Christ and we were still, we were working through what that meant. And one day Steve said to me, Marilyn, I feel like God is telling me I need to get rid of all my music. And I was like, okay. And so one day he put a stamp of a dollar on every album he had. It was like five feet of albums. And he put them in a garage sale. And that morning, a storm came up. It was in St. Catharines, Ontario. And the rain fell like it was like the beginning of the flood, the great flood. And we stood inside our garage while a wall of water just came down in front. And not one person came to our garage sale. So God, God must have wanted us to keep all that music, right? <laughs> but Steve sat there looking at the music, holding our baby. We just had a second baby. And he said, I guess God doesn't want anyone else to have the music either. And he took it in his own hands in the rain and put it in the trunk of the boot, the boot of the car, and drove it to the dump and heaved it into the dump. Now, I want to make a very clear point. That was not about us getting rid of the devil's music. That was a lot of that going on then. This rhythm is bad, this African, or it's the devil's music, or the drums, you know, drums in church and all that was going on. No, 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 no. That was not what was going on. Um, but what was going on was that we were beginning to live into the field. And music filled our house every moment. All these messages, all this music, a lot of it great, not all of it bad, some of it bad. And when we threw out all our music, our house became quiet. And maybe when we got all of our, rid of all our music, we started to actually hear each other. Because our marriage was a pretty big mess. It was wobbly. And maybe when we, heard, when we got rid of all that music and our house became quiet, we began to hear the voice of the shepherd coaching us, changing things. And maybe if we had never done that, if we had never started to obediently change the field we lived in, Maybe I wouldn't even be standing here speaking to you today. Because if you always do what you always did, you're going to get what you always got. And if you add Jesus to what you always do, you just have Jesus with all you had before. You know, something has to give, right? It's humility that ends, enables us to say yes, and it's humility that preserves our sight to see the treasure. And I hate to be the one to tell you, but you can completely lose sight of the treasure if you move to the field and just build your most comfortable life there. And I think that the field and the treasure come together for us because God knows that we are human people. And we have to work out this spiritual thing with feet on. It's a false idea, and 
um, Doug Matthews made this point yesterday so well. It is a false idea that to enter the kingdom of God is to enter utopia. It's the church where finally everybody gets along. It's the community where we don't have any problems. It's the marriage that's blessed. It's the children that are precious and sainted. It's, no, 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 I think this is telling us something else. It's saying that um, the kingdom of God is found and worked out in a field that's very ordinary and maybe not even very wonderful. Feels not wonderful sometimes. Sometimes it does feel wonderful, but not always. So can it be that this kingdom of God is really found in places so earthbound? Can it be that the kingdom of God is found in times of life that you don't love, you aren't enjoying? Is it that the field pushes us to our extremities and that's where God wants us? God was always calling people into the desert. You know that? The whole Old Testament's full of it. And the new Jesus. Jesus, you're, you're my beloved son. Come on, I'm going to take you into the field. You're not going to eat for 40 days. We're going to wrestle. I'm going to let the devil come to you. That wasn't, that was the, the most profound inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the incarnation, and it moves into the desert, into the field. Can it be that the kingdom of God requires that we lose things that we have used for our soothing? Addictions, music, relationships. Can it be that the kingdom of God involves a ministry environment that does not feel at all like the kingdom of God? Can it be that the kingdom of God involves waiting for prayers for a very long time? Or living in Wilmar, for heaven's sake. But the process of living in this field with our eyes still clearly seeing the treasure, is the process of becoming converted. I don't mean like saved. I mean converted. I mean having our whole life changed, having our whole way of thinking changed, being profoundly different. And you have to move to a new field to become profoundly different. You do. Many of us can witness to that. And there our passions are harnessed by the Holy Spirit. And there we learn to hear the voice of God and to consciously cooperate. And there we discover that some of the strengths we thought we had are really weaknesses. And there we learn that our hearts have to be, we have to fight to keep our hearts open to God. And then what happens is the treasure moves from the field into our heart. And we carry it with us. That's what conversion is about. What that we once tried to possess now possesses us. And then we never lose it. There's never a chance for us to lose it. Allow me to reflect just a little bit further. This is about the kingdom of God, but isn't it about all the important things in life? That our treasures are buried in a field. Think about your marriage or your singleness. You have an unthinkably beautiful privilege of life, but also a field that is the process of living that life out. And we lose sight of the treasure because we don't like the field. Think about friendships and connections with family. Family field is a mess. So we leave our family so that we can avoid the field.
or think about community. You know, we are lousy at community. It's because of the field, the treasure. We give up the treasure of community because the field is so hard to plow through. To have the treasure, my friends, you have to embrace the field. And if you begin to despise the field, you will lose your love for the treasure. But to embrace the field for the love of the treasure, you may come to treasure them both. And in my ponderings, I've even gone so far as to wonder whether it's almost more the presence of the field that is our transforming formational power than the fact that our eyes are on the treasure. I'm not minimizing the power of God, but I'm saying in God's wisdom, the field is what crushes us. It's what pushes us. And then we begin to realize what the treasure really is. In any case, it's a bit of a all-or-nothing proposition, isn't it, this kingdom of God? When Steve and I first graduated from Bible school in the late 70s, after following our call out to Saskatchewan, Canada, where the winter temperatures are colder regularly than Siberia, just saying, we waited for our placement to come. We had graduated. All our friends were getting placed. We weren't on the same system the Methodists have. It was a call system, but you're at, mercy, you're at the mercy of the system anyways, and we're waiting for our placement. We went all the way to the week of graduation. Every single other family, couple, all the people we were in school with, there was about 12 couples that we were, we were the ones who were the older, more mature. We were not older or more mature, but <laughs> relatively speaking, than all the other students. And um, we didn't have an assignment yet. And on our graduation weekend, we were given two options. The first option was Churchill, Manitoba. What any you say Churchill, Manitoba to anyone in Canada, and they will know that is where Canada has its worst polar bear problem. In fact, they have planes that fly over the polar bears and bomb them with blue paint so that in the winter you can see one coming. <laughs> and that's how they protect the town. Because in Canada, we don't kill things, we just paint them. Um, the, the DS who told us about this church told us that we would, that you fly in, but in winter you actually have more access because you get to take the sled dogs out. This is like 1980. I'm like, are you kidding me? Okay, so the second option was a place called Stony Plain. Okay, already you've got like, that's just, you know, it's not Golden Hills or the Woodlands, it's Stony Plain. It's a church of about 65 people, two families that hate each other. Em embedded in legalism and the King James Bible, like if you said anything else but that, you were in trouble. And the last pastor had lasted six months and left the ministry, and the two other pastors before that had also left the ministry. And every single person we met who were our advisors told us not to go. In fact, they told us the only reason the Alliance has that open is because it has a huge debt on a church that's totally dead, right? One person told us that, that graduation weekend that we should go there because, talk about vision, if you succeed, you'll be a hero. And if you fail, people will say, well, no one could succeed there anyways. <laughs> now there's a call for you. So obviously we went to Stony Plain. I mean, think of the options we had. And you know, it was a hard field. But we went because we'd already said the big yes to God, and now all we had to do was every day say the little yes. 
So this didn't feel like such a big yes, we went. I remember there was one man named Alex Sherstan, who was a legalist par excellence. In the beginning, he took Steve under his wing, thinking he could conform him to his pinch style. And he gave Steve a, a set of commentaries because he saw how pitiful his library was. Four months later, he came and took it back. There was another man in the church who used to walk out of church when he'd hear Steve preaching, because Steve was a new believer, right? Who only knew the Holy Spirit and, and worked in the scriptures, was totally dependent on God. So without all this skill and magnificence, God was just using him beautifully. And Steve, this guy, this other older man, didn't at all like Steve's preaching. He was from the other side. And he would come out of church and he would literally jab Steve in the chest and tell him, you preach like that again, I will personally see that you're out of this church. And this was when we, you know, when pastors and their wives had to stand at the back of the church and shake hands, you know. Steve used to call it the glorification of the worm ceremony. And so <laughs> you stand at the back and people go, lovely sermon, pastor, and you saw them sleep through the whole sermon, you know, and so, anyways. But just to relax me, because Steve knew how tense this was, we would stand at the back. And when um, Louis Gitzel would come and give Steve the finger, <laughs> the, cri the Christian finger, um, Steve would stand beside me and just squeeze my bum. It was just sort of like an act of rejecting the whole system, right? But you know, the strangest thing happened there. <laughs> we fell in love with them. We learned we plucked hundreds of chickens. We're city kids. We learned how to can Beans. We didn't, one year we had so many beans, we didn't know how to get rid of them all. We had filled our freezer, we had canned them. We said, if we put them out in the garbage, um, they're gonna, people are gonna, the dog's gonna rip our garbage and the neighbors are gonna see that we didn't can their beans. And so we would sit our kids by the toilet and have them flush them one by one down the <laughs> toilet. We fell in love with the rural way of life and those people, those dear, dear people, and they changed. You know what changed Alex Gitzel, Al Alex Sherstein? His son came out of the closet. And then his son got AIDS and died of AIDS. And we were the two who would go visit him. And Alex's heart was broken, and so was his legalism. So many things happened in that church. We left seven years later, a church of 400 people almost all of those new converts. It has continued to grow. It's a church now of about eight, 900 in a town of 4,000. It, it is a voice to the community. It was a crummy field, but the treasure's there. If the treasure's there, how can it be a crummy field? So I don't know how you are today with your field. Has the vision of the treasure gotten fuzzy because you're in a hard place? Do you look at your life, the treasures of your life, and despise them because the road is lumpy? Well, friends, don't lose heart. Because the kingdom of God is like a man or a woman who discovered a treasure in a field. And with great joy, they sold all they had and went and bought that field, and thereby got the treasure. The treasure in the field 
And God knows that the field is sometimes hard for us, but he never takes the treasure away. Thanks be to God.